listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. in our church historically what is uh, three weeks of a prayer emphasis and so we'll preach uh, three sermons on prayer but then on the 20th of January at 6 p.m. we begin 24 hours of prayer that's Friday evening at 6 p.m. you can go online and sign up for 24 hours of prayer it'll go from Friday at 6 p.m. until Saturday at 6 p.m. you say what does that involve if I sign up you show up at the time that you sign up and there will be a room with four tables in it, and there are four stations that you can spend 15 minutes at each station praying, and there will be uh, it's guided prayer. So you'll be praying for uh, revival and renewal. You'll be praying for our missionaries, just like um, Lane just mentioned. Um, and by the way, Travis Sawyer uh, told me, and I'm sure Pat will share this with you when he comes and shares about their time um, in Kenya, but he said greet uh, the church and uh, Caleb. Caleb Robertson said the same thing, greet um, the church. Um, these folks love our involvement in their lives and our prayer form is, is very necessary. There'll be four stations set up with guided prayer, 15 minutes at each table. So 24 hours of prayer is not you praying for 24 hours. It's you praying for one of those 24 hours. So I would encourage you to go and sign up. Uh, four people can sign up for each hour if you're going to rotate on a 15-minute basis with four people occupying the table, or it could be four families. A lot of people bring their families. Uh, the last time we did 24 hours of prayer, we had 61 people to participate in it. The unique thing about it this year is we're having 24 hours of prayer here in Locust Grove, and we're also having 24 hours of prayer in McDonough. I'm not encouraging you to go to McDonough. Let them come up with their people for 24 hours of prayer. Amen. Um, you sign up for here if you're going to be involved in um, 24 hours of prayer. But let me encourage you, we need you to sign up for that. No one has ever participated in that that regretted doing it. After the 24 hours of prayer, we're going to close out with our final message on prayer on the 22nd. And then that evening, um, the evening of the 22nd, we're going to have a combined prayer service between our two congregations at 5 o'clock p.m. It'll be from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock p.m. And so if you put those things down on your calendar, and then the last Sunday of the month, we're going to do something that we've never done before. We're going to be having partners meetings in two different locations. So McDonough will be having their partners meetings to deal with congregational specific issues, and we'll be having our, our uh, partners meeting to deal with congregational specific issues. There's also not going to be any supplemental food. So um, if you plan on eating, plan on bringing some food and um, sign up for that. And it's always a great time when we have our partners meetings. And I hope you'll just mark it on your calendar, plan on being here the last Sunday of the month. Uh, with that, um, I, I'll begin um, my message this morning and just confess to you that preaching on prayer seems uh, to, to me to be a little bit hypocritical. Um, not because I don't pray, I do, but because I don't pray well. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong, um, I, I have good form, I use the biblical models. They are there. I use the biblical formulas, if, if that indeed is what they are, 
helper, if that is what we're supposed to call him. I close every prayer within in, in Jesus' name. Doesn't that somehow get it across the finish line? I even pray on occasion effectually and fervently out of James 5. But uh, if I'm honest, I don't see the results that I'd like to see from my prayer, right? Don't we think that if somebody really prays, that they're really getting through, isn't there somebody that when you are in distress, you call them because you know they're going to break through, you know they're going to get through, you know they're going to get answers? And if we don't get answers, then what of our prayer life? As we consider prayer over the next three weeks, I'd like for us to look at situational praying. Not so much scriptural instruction on prayer, not so much instruction on how to pray, but the actual prayers of people in Scripture. Um, And in particular, this week and next week, we'll look at the situational prayers of David. Scripture records a significant number of David's prayers. If you just go to the Psalms alone, we know David wrote 73 of the Psalms. There are 50 orphan Psalms, and we believe that David may have written 12 of those, so that puts him at 85 of the Psalms, and many of those Psalms are prayer, but that doesn't mean that David was good at prayer either. It just means we have his prayers recorded. In fact, David is not really known for prayer or answered prayer. He's known more for Bathsheba and Uriah and Absalom. Yet as the predominant author of the Psalms, the Holy Spirit has placed David's situations and David's prayers right in front of us. Dane Ortland, in this uh, great devotional in the Lord I Take Refuge, um, Ben Shirouse gave this to me for Christmas. I think he's out, so don't ask him for any more. Ben, I just set you up. You might better order a case. Here's what Dane Ortland says in this introduction. He said, the Psalms are unlike any other portion of Scripture. This is the one book of the Bible written to God. We are taught in many other places in Scripture how to pray. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. Paul gives us, tells us to pray without ceasing, but the Psalms are themselves prayers. In this way, the Psalms are uniquely suited to foster communion with God. The Psalms give voice to our hearts. The wide range of human feelings is here given concrete expression. We are given language to address God with thanks and praise, but also with our feelings of desolation or despair or overwhelming guilt because of our sin. That's why we're looking at the Psalms, because they are Psalms that, teach, that, that give us these prayers of people, and their prayers are situational. So I believe they might be helpful. And we're going to be looking in Psalm 142 this morning, and we're going to be looking at this prayer for rescue. David needs to be rescued. Next week, we'll look in the Psalms at prayer for revival. So as you turn to Psalm 142, let me try to set the context up for you. We know from Scripture, um, from First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, um, that David, the writer of the Psalms, was one of eight um, sons of Jesse. David was out minding his business, tending his sheep, writing his songs out under the moonlight and the stars, 
And all of a sudden, one day, this guy named Samuel comes on the scene. Now, Daniel shows up. Samuel shows up, not Daniel. We'll get into Daniel after the prayer series. Samuel shows up because there was a king in Israel. They had to have a king. They wanted a king, and his name was Saul, but Saul had blown it. Saul had uh, lost the hand of God. A new king was going to be anointed. And so Saul is, or Samuel is going around looking for this king to anoint. He's led to the house of Jesse. He starts with Jesse's oldest son. He goes all the way through all of the brothers except for David. And he says, none of these guys is going to be anointed as king. Do you have any more kids? It's like, I got one, but you don't want him. He, he's the most unlikely person in all of Israel to be a king, he's out tending sheep. He's never accomplished anything. He's never been to war. He said, bring him here. He brings him in. He anoints him. And the thing we need to understand is from the time that David was anointed until the time that he was actually officially recognized and crowned as king was 14 years, 14 or 15 years. In those 14 or 15 years, he's hanging out with um, Saul as a musician because his music was soothing. He's best friends, with, best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They're hanging out. They're blood brothers. But then when Saul finds out that David is the guy that God has in line for the throne, then Saul sets out to try to kill David because Saul wanted his son to be the next king. And so David, for years, is running for his life from this guy named Saul. And in Psalm 142, David finds himself, you can correspond it to 1 Samuel chapter 22, David finds himself running from Saul, running from the armies of Israel, running from special forces. These guys are good. They're, they're guys to be scared of. They're, they're trained for battle. They're trained to sniff out some, some une, inexperienced, uh, untrained kid who doesn't know anything about governing. All he knows about is tending sheep and writing songs, probably perceived as, you know, a little light in his loafers because he was a musician. Who knows? Definitely wasn't a man of battle from people's perspective. I can imagine that David was scared. And in fear and trepidation and in hopelessness, he writes Psalm 142. Let's read it together, seven verses. With the voice, with my voice, listen to it carefully, listen to the details. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. He says in the Psalm three times, I cry out. That's how the Psalm is broken down. I'm breaking it down into two parts. He says it three times, but he begins in verses one to four with his distress. He says, I cry out to the Lord. We see David's distress, but we also see beginning in verse five that David cries out to the Lord again. And not only is he crying out to, to the Lord to say, I am in distress, but he's crying out to the Lord to say, Lord, in my distress, I need for you to disclose yourself. So he says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. I plead for mercy to the Lord. I, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of 
me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. Here is David with the armies of Saul, with the armies of Israel, with the special forces of Israel, with probably the most highly trained uh, military experts in the known world at that time. They were after him, and he said, I don't have anybody. I'm sitting here inside this cave without any hope, without anybody to help me. I don't have a champion at my right hand to protect me. Everything is boiling over out of me. It is uncontrollable. I am in distress. But we come to verse 5, and we see his plea for God to disclose himself. I cry to you, O Lord, while I don't have a refuge, you are my refuge. And while I haven't been crowned king and I don't have a piece of land and I don't have a lot and I don't have a portion and I don't have an inheritance and everybody wants to take anything that I do have away from me and even take my life, he says, but you are my portion. And I love this, in the land of, in the, land of the living, in the land where there is life. That's beautiful because whatever land you're living in right now, if it is not the land where the presence of God dwells at the center of it and speaks clearly from his word to our mind and our heart and our soul, if it is not the land where the presence of God dwells, it is the land of death. He said, he said I, I want, Lord, you to be my refuge. You are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Right now I'm in a cave. I'm in the land of death. The people of death are chasing after me. He continues to cry out to God, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Maybe you're in distress today. Uh, that's, that's, what we, that's what we deal with if we're alive, right? I heard someone say over the holidays, um, uh, you know, I, I would leave my husband, but I'm staying with him because of the kids. That's a pretty distressful situation for somebody 40 years old that's thinking the next 30 years of their life, if they live that long, is just going to be drudgery and misery. That is distressful. Um, we're heading into distressful economic times. Things are distressful politically. Things are distressful in the stock market where we put a lot of our hope, especially if we're planning on retiring in the next 10 years. There's children distress. If you've got kids, you've got distress. Amen. Any, any way you look at it, and then there's physical distress. There's sickness. There are things that weigh us down that we, in many cases, can't do anything about it. So there is this reality of distress and anxiety and anguish and our inability to do anything about it. That's where David is. He is in distress. And he tells us this. Let's notice what he does as he prays. In distress, David does three things. Number one, in distress, David pleads for mercy. Now, I love this text because this text is pointing out to us that David is, is crying out with his voice. That's important. That's important. Let me, I'm reading this interesting book by Oz Guinness called The Magna Carta of Humanity. Um, you can look it up and get a copy. Uh, for me, it's a slow read because I have a dense brain and a 
a shallow brain and um, just slow. Uh, but I found it fascinating as he looked at the Exodus and he, he looked at the distress of Israel. And he looked at how God showed up to disclose himself in their distress. And I can't help but believe that anybody who was alive at this time, maybe four or 500 years forward from the Exodus, I believe David might have been, if my numbers are correct, historically, I can't believe that anybody who was Jewish would be in any kind of distress and would not reflect back on the most distressing time in the history of his nation when Israel was in slavery to Egypt. And God showed up in a burning bush and said, I am that I am. I am God. I am eternal. I am a God of the past. I am a God of the present. I am a God of the future. And your greatest need is for me to show up in your distress. But, but listen, as, as David says, I, I cried out to the Lord. The Bible's answer to both questions, and he's speaking about a previous question, and straightforward but is, is straightforward but mighty. Listen, words. Words. God is invisible, but he is not inaudible. Without words, God would be incomprehensible to us and we to each other. But words express the inner and the invisible. They make the deepest bonding impossible, make the deepest bonding possible. In Revelation, God speaks and we listen. In prayer, we speak and God listens. And in our words to each other, we say in words what they could otherwise never know. The answer to God's mystery, Rabbi Sachs, and he keeps referring to these rabbis to help us understand the Old Testament. Astonishing in its beauty and its simplicity is that the meeting between us and God is like the meeting between two persons, myself and another. I can see your body, but I cannot feel your pain. How then can I enter into your world? Through words. You speak I listen. I answer. You answer. We communicate. Language is the narrow bridge across the abyss between soul and human soul. So it is between us and the soul of the universe. And he's talking about God there. Revelation takes place through speech. That is what happened at Sinai. Infinite, infinity spoke and the world trembled. In the silence of the desert, the Israelites heard the voice of God. God is close but encountered not in things seen, but in words heard. It is the importance of us when we are in distress to let what is boiling in our soul to pour out through our words to him. The text makes that clear, it is undeniable. With my voice, right, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. So in distress, use your voice to plead for mercy. C.S. Lewis said, may it be the real you that I speak to and may it be the real me who speaks. It's, it's not about the formality of it. It's not about the pomp and circumstance. It's not about our fancy words, but it's about us releasing what is bubbling up inside of us in our distress. And God is there to hear and we are there to listen. 
May it be, be the real you that I speak to, and may it be the real me who speaks. And David was crying out, it was real. The word cry means a ringing cry, a gut-wrenching cry, a cry from the deepest part of my being, a cry that doesn't concern itself with formalness or decorum or propriety. It is an unmasked, unaltered, unencumbered, unashamed, uncontrollable, uncontainable cry. Blind Bartimaeus, sitting by the road, heard that Jesus was passing by. Actually, he heard a crowd was passing by. And he's like, who is it? Because he couldn't see. And they said, Jesus is passing by. Son of David, have, what's the next word? Mercy on me. They're like, dude, would you calm down? You're making a fool of yourself. He got louder. That's what the psalmist is telling us. Cry out. Cry out. It is my soul erupting like a volcano through my voice and my words. It is a cry to the Lord. It is a cry to Yahweh. It is a cry of allegiance. I am crying out because of my allegiance to Yahweh. It is a cry of hopelessness and desperation. I am in a situation I cannot resolve. I am trapped here in this cave and my only hope is you. It is a cry for mercy. We need, to, we need to watch that. It is, a cry for, it, is a, it is not a cry for justice. It is not a cry for justice. David not, does not presume to be on equal standing with God. It, it, it is not a prayer of self-justification. It is a finite man calling out to an infinite God. It is a sinful man calling out to a holy God. It is a temporary man calling out to an eternal God. It is a man who has lost complete control, crying out to God who is sovereign and in complete control. It is a man recognizing his utter weakness and powerlessness, crying out to the God who is all-powerful. It is a cry for mercy which says, don't give me what I deserve. I deserve death. Give me mercy. I deserve death. Give me life. And it is a cry that can only be ultimately satisfied in the gospel. Because anytime we cry out for mercy, the only way mercy can be dispensed to us is because God gave his son justice, the justice that we deserved, which was death. But because God punished, killed his son for our sin, he now can justly dispense mercy to you and me who do not deserve it because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. This cry, then, if it is a cry of mercy, has to be a cry of humility. It can't be a cry of pride. It can't be a cry of anger. It can't be a cry saying, I, God, I, I can't believe you're doing this. It's a cry of humility. There are two guys that went to the temple to pray, and one guy says, Lord, he walks up front. He says, Lord, I, I know everybody's glad I'm here. I know you're glad I'm here. I know I'm glad I'm here, and I'm just an amazing guy. There was a guy standing in the back, smites his chest, keeps his head down. He says, have mercy on me. And Jesus then gives us a synopsis of what was going on in their hearts, and what was going on in the hearts of one was pride, which God is going to resist, but the other came before him in humility. And the cry for mercy is a cry of humility. I cry out for mercy from a disposition of humility. 
So I, I plead for mercy in my distress. Secondly, I pour out my complaint in my distress. And the word pour out means to, to be melted and pliable. My burden boils over within me. His complaint is his anxiety. He says in verse 2, I pour out his boil, this, this, what is boiling over in me, this complaint, my anxiety is before your face, God, literally. Before him is, is literally before the face of God, before a God who is looking and present and listening and concerned and caring and loving. He talks about his trouble in the text as well. I tell my trouble before him, it, it means his anguish, his tightness. Everything inside of him is closed in on him. And when the word says, when the word there, tell is defined as holding nothing back. Literally, David is saying that, that I tell of my trouble before him. I tell, the word tell means to open up the faucet full blast and let the trouble that is inside of me gush out before God through my words and my emotions. As he pours out his complaint, he says, my spirit faints. He's in touch with what's churning on the inside of him. He's honest about his interior world before a holy God. He understands his internal disposition. But he says, even while I'm fainting, Lord, you know, you understand. Perhaps this was ordained even before I was born. You know, God. You know you are guiding me. You are leading me. I'm not in this cave by accident. I'm not in this cave by chance. And what's going on with Saul over these years now, 14 years that I didn't ask for, you knew about it. Let me go back and keep the sheep. I grew up in a cabinet shop and I started out sweeping. And more days than not, I wish I still was. Just, man, I just like to go out sometimes and take the skill saw and cut a piece of wood and inhale the sawdust. David is thinking, I wish I could go back and just keep the sheep. God, you're the one that got me into all this. You're the one that's led me to this place. You know my way, but in the way, understand that I am walking through relational and situational minefields. All of these people are against me. I am the enemy to them. They're constantly scheming ways to set me up. Everything is designed by the enemy for my destruction. We understand that from Ephesians chapter 6 where we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places. Their goal is to constantly put minds in the minefield for you to step on to blow your spiritual life up. Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, Satan has desired you that he might sift you as wheat. The enemy is always after us. He comes to steal and kill and destroy in John 10. There are these hidden traps that the enemy sets intended to deceive and destroy and they're hidden and unexpected and surprising. And he even uses people to do that. Thirdly, in my distress, David said, I am alone. Alexander McLaren said, unless we have Jesus in the darkness, we have no one. Unless we have Jesus in the darkness, we have no one. Does that diminish the relationships that God has put us in here on this earth? No, that only enriches the relationships that we have with people here on this earth. 
David says to the right hand, the the right hand is where your champion is. The right hand is where your defender is. The right hand is where your defense attorney is. The right hand is is where where you find yourself in trouble and somebody steps up to take your place. I was watching a basketball game yesterday and this guy gets knocked down and gets kicked in the head. And after he got kicked in the head, all of his teammates come running over. They're going to back him up. I got your back, David said. Nobody's got my back. Nobody's got my back. They beat me up and nobody comes to defend me. I don't have anybody with me. I'm absolutely alone. I have no legal counsel. No one is for me. No one is with me. No one notices or understands what I'm going through. I have no place to go. I am dangerously exposed. And literally, the text would translate itself by saying, no one is looking into the depth of my soul to see how I am doing. No one is looking into the depth of my soul to see how I am doing. That's David's distress. But secondly, we come not only to his distress, but beginning in verse 5, we see his disclosure. Disclosure is the act of making something known. It is revelation. It is literally showing up. David is convinced with all that he's going through in these four verses that the primary thing that he needs is for God to show up. So so as we look at disclosure, let me just give you three things that I see in the text. Number one, David says, as he longs for divine disclosure, he says, I cry out to the Lord. He uses the word my, making it very personal. The Lord is not a refuge. The Lord is not a portion. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my portion. So he said, uh, verse 5, I cry out to the Lord, and I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Whereas just before in his distress, he's saying, I don't have a place of refuge. I don't have anybody to go to. I don't have a portion. I don't have anybody that can help me. And that may be true in your situation and in my situation. But he says, I have the Lord. I cry out to the Lord. He is my refuge. He is my, my personal shelter and covering The city of refuge was a place that you could go to and you could be safe. It's like a sanctuary city. In times of danger, there is my refuge. And here's what David would say, being with you is my refuge. He's he's not saying, "If, if, if I know you, you are going to give me a refuge. He's saying, you are, being with you is my refuge refuge. That that is my safe place, being with you. You are my portion. The word portion is like a tract of land. Let's say your grandparents or your parents have 100 acres of land and they have 10 kids. They're going to give each kid if, if they're fair and each kid behaves and the parents choose to do it. They don't have to be fair, by the way. They could give all of the land to me. That's what I was hoping my parents would do, but they didn't do that. Somebody says, well, they didn't divide it evenly. Well, well, they can do whatever they want to do with it. And David is saying, listen, there is this lot, there is this inheritance, there is this portion, there is this tract of land that has been left to me that is mine and the tract of land that I have been given, the portion that I have been given, the portion that has been separated out and assigned to me is you, God. Not, not, Lord, you will give me a portion, 
but you, all of you is my portion. That's absolutely amazing. That's good news. That's good news. You are my refuge. Being with you is my refuge. Being with you is my portion. The portion is not a material blessing that's going to rust and never satisfy. You are my portion. And I'm, I'm going to get that and experience this in the land of the living, in the land of life. There is no life apart from the presence of God. The land of the living is the place where God dwells. And he invites us into the land of the living. So we can go to the land of the living where God who is life is there and everybody who is in the land of the living is experienced the land of life. And so when we as believers get together, we should be able to experience this, this life of being together that transcends the city limits of Locust Grove or the walls of this building or the borders of our state. The land of the living is, is this universal land where the, the saints are. And there is this invitation very clearly this morning for an invitation out of the land of death into the land of the living. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come out of death into the land of the living. I, I love Hebrews and Hebrews 11 in particular, but it says they were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. They were looking for a land that didn't look like this land, that didn't operate like this land, that didn't feel like this land. It's a different land. It's a different place to live. And you can go there right now. I can go there right now. We can be together there right now. I cry out to the Lord who is there and he is my refuge and he is my portion and I'm experiencing that in the land of the living. Being with you puts me in the land of the living. I cry out to the Lord who is there. Secondly, I cry out for God to respond. He says, attend, listen, give attention. Please show up, God. I need to hear from you, and I need for you to hear me. I need to know that as I'm crying out to you, that when you show up, that you're going to stand before me, and we're going to look at each other face to face, and I'm talking to you, and I want to know that you are there. It is your presence that I need, but I also know that I need to hear something in my heart that lets me know you're there. I cry out for God to respond. He said, I'm brought low. I'm brought down low. I'm impoverished. Very, very, extremely low. He's speaking to his distress, and he says, deliver me. God, would you please respond and deliver me? It's okay to pray for that. The word deliver me means snatch me away. Come and pluck me out of this situation that I'm in. David recognizes that he cannot get out of it by his own power, by his own ingenuity. He realizes that the situation is stronger than him. The situation is bigger than him. The situation is more powerful than him. 
and that someone besides himself or any other human being is going to have to rescue him. So he says, deliver me. And then he kind of closes it out. He says, Lord, if, if you'll get me out of this prison, I will worship you. Now, you can worship in prison. We can worship in our distress. But David is saying, Lord, would, would, you, would you come and show up? Would you be there? Would you transform me? Would you transform this situation? Because at the end of the day, all I want to do in life or in death, in peace or in distress, all I want to do is worship you. Bring me out of prison. Bring me out of this dungeon that I may give thanks to your name. And then David finally cries out with hope in God alone in verse 7. And he says, the righteous will surround me. We can look at uh, 1 Samuel 22 verse 1 and you can see David in the cave but before long, his family finds out where he is and they show up to be there with him. The righteous will surround me for you will, this is his hope and this is his confidence. You will deal bountifully with me. You will deal bountifully with me. He doesn't say, God, deal bountifully with me. He knows that when God shows up, God will do what God does. And David says, I'll live with that. You will do what you do and God deals bountifully. And when God shows up and God does what God does, then David will be strengthened by his power and grace to rest in that. Psalm 142. I'm glad you're here today. I don't have any secrets. I don't have any keys. I don't have any holy water to sprinkle over you. I don't have any prayer cloths. I don't have any relics. I don't have any rituals. I don't have any formulas. I don't have any incantations. This is all I have. And we just spent... I don't know how many minutes looking at a man praying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 142. This is all I have. And it isn't David. And it isn't his prayer. It is his God. It's pure and it's simple. It's God. It's not necessarily rational or scientific or academic. If you're looking for academia, if you're looking for the scientific method, if you're looking for some form of rationalism that is going to convince you apart from the power of the Holy Spirit doing a work in your heart, then it's not here. We don't have that. It's a relationship with the creator of all things. It is he who gives you the capacity to breathe. It is he who makes your heart beat. It is he who makes the synapses in your brain connect so that your eyes can see me and your ears can hear me and you can look to the right or the left or even swallow. And it is this God who loves and speaks and listens and relates and that is your greatest need now 
and forever. And I would, I would challenge you in the midst of your distress to say, Lord, you are at the center of my life. And I would challenge you in your distress to say, I want you, Lord, you are my refuge. Being with you is my refuge. You are my portion. Being with you is my portion. I want to be in the land of the living, which transforms everything about my value system, every single thing about my value system. I want to be in the land of the living. And the only way you can get there is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ left her, uh, heaven, came to earth, robed himself in flesh so that God in flesh could look human beings in the eyeball and that they could see his love and his grace and his mercy and his power and his divinity and know that this was God who was walking around as he healed, know that this was God who was walking around as he performed miracle after miracle after miracle. He did things that no one but God could do, and then he fulfilled all righteousness, fulfilled the law perfectly, and then was killed and hung on a cross, the perfect sacrifice, and died there in my place and in your place for our sin. And he rose victorious over sin, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent his Spirit to come and work. If you do not know Christ, the Spirit can work in your heart and life right now to convict you, to draw you. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can pray like this and experience what David was talking about in this prayer in Psalm 142. So as you read that psalm, think first of the gospel. Think secondly of your relationship with holy God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then I would challenge you to learn all that you can. You know, it's interesting, the introduction to the psalm in Psalm 142 um, is, um, I, I don't know how to pronounce the word. I, I took Hebrew and barely passed it. Um, uh, he uses this word, um, miscal. It means instruction. In other words, David is saying, these are the things that I learned while I was in a cave praying to God. These are the things that David learned while he was in a cave praying to God. And let me just say this. It seems to me that David learned a lot more as a young man in a cave than he did on the roof of the palace when he was looking at Bathsheba take a bath. There's a lot more to be gleaned about God. There's a lot more to be learned about prayer. There's a lot more to be learned about our relationship with him, about what our refuge really is, about what our portion really is, about where the land of the living really is. There's a lot more to be learned in the cave than there is in the penthouse. So may the Lord take his word and apply it to our hearts and transform us into people that will cry out to him like David cried out to God in his distress. We have these elements here. They represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They are our proclamation of the gospel to you. They are your affirmation of your commitment to the gospel, your allegiance 
to Jesus Christ. And if you know him, we invite you to come. I would encourage you to set everything aside in your mind. I would encourage you not to have casual conversation as you walk up here. Not because there's some ritualism or formalism that is required, but the point of these elements is for you to remember the Lord. To remember the Lord. So your attention after going through the week and forgetting everything while you were driving or working or trying to deal with your kids or deal with your spouse or just deal with life in general, just stop everything. Time out. Remember the Lord. Remember his life. Remember his death. Remember his resurrection. And remember when all this is over, Jesus is coming back. And everything that you think is wrong is going to be fixed when he comes back if you know him. I'm going to pray and then invite you to come. Father, um, thank you for this man in his distress, this very young man who learned early on in, in the throes of adversity when his life was threatened, in, in the face of promises that he probably thought on many occasions he wished they would hurry up and come true and he would be the king and his enemy would be defeated, but for some reason you allowed this distress to linger. You allowed him over months and even years to be an enemy, to be like an animal that was hunted. And it was all part of your plan. Thank you that you give us this window that David comes alive in our presence because you are alive. I, I pray that our longing would not be this world. I pray that our longing would not be the things of this world. I pray that our longing today would be you, our refuge, you, our portion. And I pray that our longing this morning would be to live in the land of the living. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to come this morning.